Welcome to the Sport Mind podcast series, where I sit down with world-leading guests and unlock the secrets to mental strength in sports. Today, before you dive into the episode, I have something special for all listeners. Are you struggling with self-doubt, overwhelmed by performance anxiety, battling inconsistency, or facing fear of failure in your sport? Are you looking to overcome these obstacles and conquer the mental game? Well, I've got just the toolkit for you. An ebook I wrote called Overcoming the Top 10 Mental Obstacles in Sport, which you can get today completely free of charge. This comprehensive ebook is a treasure trove of practical and actionable strategies tailored for athletes who want to unblock the most common mental obstacles. Each chapter offers digestible advice, providing immediate tools you can apply to enhance your mental game. Readers have been raving about the insights and the transformations they've experienced with this guide. Teresa from California emailed recently saying, Your guide is brilliantly helpful. I've just been getting into it and I'm truly excited to use it to help with the obstacles I face regularly. I wrote this ebook to be concise, punchy, and most importantly, practical for immediate application. And the best part? It's completely free. A token of your commitment to your mental and athletic growth. So click on the link in the show notes right now to grab your copy of Overcoming the Top 10 Mental Obstacles in Sport or simply visit the SportMind Hub by googling SportMind Hub. Equip yourself today with the knowledge and tools to face those mental challenges head on. Now, let's jump into today's episode and get ready to elevate your mental game to the next level. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Welcome to your next installment of this podcast series. I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Rob Owen to the show today. For those of you who don't know Rob Owen, I think you're in for an absolute treat. And for those that know him, are in for probably an even more bigger treat. So Rob was really kind to share some of his precious time with me. He's one of the busiest, most sought-after men in coaching and squash at the moment. Rob is currently coaching Paul Cole and Sarah Jane Perry as two of his main players at the moment. But there's a lot more players in his stable as well as some of the top juniors in the country. We're going to discuss a lot of these players and go into a lot of in-depth conversation around them. But we reflect a lot on Paul Cole's success at the 2022 British Open, where he won the whole event three love in an immaculate performance, some of the most cleanest, purest squash you can imagine. And I was lucky enough to see the semis and finals live, so it was quite close to my heart to be able to speak to Rob about this. We also discussed the recent 2022 World Open, where Paul lost in the semi-finals, but had an absolutely brutal match in the quarterfinals with Tarek Momin, and equally so had a brutal match with Mohamed Al-Shabagi in the semi-finals. And Rob is one of the most direct, straight talkers in the game. And that's what's so refreshing and possibly what's even needed a little bit more in the game. So I was really lucky to capture this conversation with Rob. And he was very open and very honest with what he wanted to speak about and was very direct. And I want to applaud him for this because I think it's it's great that someone can speak their mind and that we can share these ideas and these thoughts. We also take quite a deep look into the mindset and I really try pick his brains in regard to his mind and how he sees things being such a successful gambler and how he really keeps it simple. And this comes across really well with his players, with Paul, with Sarah Jane Perry, but equally so what's more impressive is his ability to be really personable with his players, like really understand the the nuances of each player and how he's able to get the best out of them. So I think for those that are listening are going to find a lot of nuggets and a lot of treats in this conversation. 
we do zoom in and we zoom out a lot. We talk about the the bigger picture of the game and where he thinks the future is going to be. And then we get back into a lot of the detail around some of the key aspects that he's seeing in the game that's bringing success to his players, as well as possibly what some of the other players might need to watch out for. So this conversation is probably one of the most wide-ranging, curious, interesting conversations I've had on the podcast series up until date. And I am just super thankful and grateful for Rob's time. We seem to have connected pretty well over the course of the last several weeks or so, and we are chatting quite a lot at the moment. So without further ado, please welcome Rob Owen. Rob Owen, welcome to the next installment of the Squash Mind podcast series. Really chuffed to have you here today. We've had a, quite a bit of offline chatting so far, but I think a great place to kick off is, um, you know, those that might not know you, which is probably a very small demographic. Um, could you give a brief uh, introduction to yourself, maybe a bit of your playing career and then your transition into a coach at the moment? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm sure there's lots and lots of people out there don't know me at all. And there'll be some people that uh, think they know me and actually don't know me, which I think will be the vast majority. And there'll be a lot of people out there have their own view of me, as I say, and, and that's often very different to the actual reality of what I'm like. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, just very briefly, I was uh, obviously, as you probably know, I was a squash player of sorts. I, I would call myself a failed squash professional. Um, I got top 20 world, which to me was a failure, and potentially where I could have done. But uh, a lot of people would think that was fantastic. But no, I was very disappointed with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I then became an optician briefly. Um, I was a terrible, terrible optician as well. Um, <laughs> hopeless optician. I, I need to ask, what, where, where did optician from squash professional top 20 in the world, which failure? Okay, interesting thing we could talk about there and jumping into opticians. What happened there? I, I was, I, look, I retired very young. Uh, I played squash. I, was, I, I, I love playing. I love playing. I, was, I, I love the lifestyle. I love the whole thing around squash. I was a squash fanatic, squash geek. Um, but I, I also realised that there's I had a reasonable sort of brain and there's other things I can do. And uh, I didn't want to go into coaching at that point in my career. 26 years old, I went back to university. Uh, my father was an optician and my oh, sister see. was an optician. So there was a family background. There was an opportunity to, you know, get involved in the family business and potentially to my own business. And so that was uh, that was appealing. And it was just a, a new challenge. I always enjoyed new challenges. So yeah, I was an optician for oh I can't remember how I was for about really ten years. I was involved in that. And then I was I supplemented my income at uh, university by gambling. Mm-hmm. Um, I made enough to supplement my income. And then it got to the stage where I was earning as much in a month of gambling as I was an optician as a year. Mm. So I decided I took the plunge and again another complete change of direction. I became a full-time professional gambler, betting mm-hmm. on sports, mainly racing, a lot of cricket, uh, a lot of tennis. Um, and I was that was a 24-7 intense job, I can tell you. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I love that. I uh, met a lot of very, very interesting people. Um, you know, I had to really use my brain. Um, you know, and it's an interesting world, the professional gambling world. And it's, it's tough. There's millions and millions of people gambling. There's not many people playing a squash. Mm. Um, but gambling to be the best at gambling it is, is tough. You know, and you've got to put a lot of effort into it. Mm. So there's, there's there's a couple of little threads there. Let's maybe pick up on that. Um, I suppose that failure piece is one I want to talk about. Um, maybe secondly, the the mindset of a gambler and how you see things and how this transitions into a kind of a coaching role. Um, but yeah, you said like top 20 in the world and, and with your benchmarks and maybe your high watermark, why would you why would you define top 20 as failure for you? It depends. Everyone has a different reason for what and, and why they, they call things a failure. Um, is it a failure financially? Is it a failure with satisfaction? Is it a failure with the ability you had and you should have done better? There's a whole way you can success and failure is in, in someone's mind and your idea of success and failure may well be greater than my idea of success and failure. Um, I have high standards and I felt that I had a certain amount of ability that to me I wasn't using the best way. 
Um, okay. You know, I had, I, had a, I had a decent amount of talent and I wasn't working as hard as I felt I should have, should have been. Um, I also wasn't enjoying playing squash as much as I felt I should. I felt I was doing it for a living rather than because it was something I loved and wanted to do. So I was playing leagues everywhere. Okay. Um, and I just felt I drifted off to the path I wanted to. And when I started playing squash, I wanted to, you know, most people don't say it, but I wanted to be one of the best players in the world. I wasn't one of the best players in the world and therefore I felt that's a failure. And those people I was playing with, I was a single standard with as a young age and I had as much ability as if not more some of them, and they were well above me. So to me, I felt I failed in my squash career, without a doubt. Um, I felt yeah. I, had a, I had a world number one brain, world number the top uh, world squash brain, um, to play the sport at the top level. I had, the, I had the body of a sort of a, of a civilian, sort of pedestrian, walking down the street at four miles an hour. So my, I wasn't as good physically either for the sport as some people might have been, and that obviously held me back a little too. Mm, okay. So... Just using that as a reference now and, you know, fast forwarding 20 odd years now that you're mentoring and coaching some of the world's best players, has there been lessons from the Rob Owen as a player and and how do you maybe see or help players that might be going on that same path of you or not necessarily maximizing their ability? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, there's, there's been huge lessons. I've been very lucky to have the experience I have because that's made me a better coach. I think if I've been a better player, it wouldn't have been actually quite as helpful as a coach. Um, I knew what was needed, but I didn't do it. I knew the mistakes I'd made, and I can hopefully ensure that my players don't make those mistakes. Um, and I, I spent a lot of time around some great players over the last 40 years, picking brains, watching people, analytically watching a lot. I, I'm good at analysing things. And um, yeah, it was a huge help for me, really, uh, my squash career, uh, in my coaching now, without a doubt. Mm. And well, we're definitely going to start to unpack that and explore that as we, as we go. So the... Um... Uh, the, the the gambling mind, the fast mind, the, the 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 seeing things, you know, whether it's a zooming out and and connecting dots. Uh, how does this, you know, help you know your your view of squash and and how do you use your I suppose your professional life to see those little aspects on the squash court? Does anything come to mind when I ask that? I think what I've done in life is I've simplified things, so I can I can look at quite a complicated subject or quite a complicated. Um, you know, quite complicated numbers, and I can simplify them very quickly. Um, I can watch a sport. Um, I can very quickly see who's the best, which is most people, you know, they think, well, that's obvious, but it's not obvious sometimes. And I can also put that uh, into a probability, into a price. So I can watch two players playing a game of tennis, uh, and I can work out very quickly that he's, he's, you know, 10% better than him. And I can work out a price. And most people can work out who the better players is what they can't do is that work out the exact price for that probability to happen. So I could work okay. out at one place, four to six, and the other guy is six to four, pretty mm-hmm. accurately. And those numbers will stack up when I'm betting. Um, and that is something that's a rare ability to actually simplify that. So, and obviously there's a whole host of complicated things that go into making that simple. You know, it could be technique, it could be movement, um, it could be the mind, it could be, you know, the way they hit the ball, um, a whole host of things. And obviously I'll work a lot of these things out, the horse race, for example, before the race, mm-hmm. it could be the ground, it could be the jockey, the pace, how much pace in the race? Is this four front runners? Is this one front runner? Will the favour get an easy lead? Will it be taken on to lead? Will it be too far out the back? Does it want a straight track? Um, is the ground too soft for it? Um, I don't have a particular jockey on a certain horse. And all those things, straight away, there's a lot of imponderables, the breeding I've talked sure. about there. Mm-hmm. And I've added those, put them in a melting pot, and I've worked out a price and simplified it. And so actually, that's quite obvious. So mm. sometimes I can come up with a, something, so that's just you know, very obvious that's going to win or that's going to lose or not win um, and be pretty much right as far as the, the eventuality and then put that into a price. Hmm. And that's, that's, and I haven't really, in what I do, obviously I've met a few people in squash, I've met anybody who can do that at all, not even yeah. close. 
Mm. So that's so interesting. And obviously this, this podcast and what I'm trying to do a lot of is exploring the mind. And what I'm hearing you say there, there, there's obviously a lot of data. There's a lot of thinking, a lot of cognitive heavy lifting, but then where does the instinct come in? Like, and again, I'm link thinking about this in squash and, and, you know, you're looking at all the data and, and, and it's there. How much of this is just purely data driven and how much of this is also part of your instinct that kicks in at a certain point? That's a very good point, Jesse. Very good point. It's interesting because obviously I could, I could have exactly the same race uh, running two days consecutively, and the one side there might be a very slight variable of that, or, or different conditions, or whatever it might be. One fact might change, and I completely change my view on the whole race. So you have to be adaptable, and there is a little instinct of gut feeling, um, and, and that plays a big part. And part of that is experience, um, a lot of experience in that. Uh, and learning from those experiences but uh, I have a knack of sort of you know working those things out which, and that's bit, very helpful in squash you know very very helpful in squash you can see two players play one day and then it's slightly different conditions or one's moving slightly better or one's in the ball slightly better wherever it is and you can adapt and change and you can do that very quickly mm-hmm. I'm very good at making quick decisions um, analytically and give mm-hmm. myself time to think under pressure um, so with my betting especially I bet in running um, so I'm going to make quick and sometimes you have to make it wrong very quickly as well hmm. and then change your mind and that's hmm. another skill because hmm. a lot of people don't like to change their mind I see that in squash coaching all the time um, they're very hmm. bullish and something's not working but they'll just stick away keep hammering away hammering away hmm. I've been so if you came along and said Rob some of your players you know not in their forehand job they'd be better if it's like this and hmm. I'd, I'd look at it I'd, t- I'd get you to show me um, I'd have a look I'd see it in practice and say, and I'd say do you know what Jesse you're right that's better hmm. I'd change it overnight hmm. there's not many coaches who would do that True. Um, so whenever I've seen somebody or met somebody who said you can do this better or this is a better way to do it I've literally done it overnight that was the same with gambling um, I've met a lot of very very successful people and you know I've changed the way I do things I'm now betting against computers a lot of the time so when I've gone to sort of the, the bet fair sort of things been invited to things I remember the last uh, thing I went to there was 20 people on the table 19 of them were using algorithms and computers I was the only person using my brain serious um, wow. and none of them could believe I was actually doing it how I did it um, and I was just sitting there old-fashioned working out my head Love and the it. problem with data is you just follow data you're dictated by the data completely I'm dictated I use the data and then I, I use the data how I want to use it and, and put my own price on that data and that's the skill that a lot of people haven't got as well so mm. if you're just data driven that's also a mistake because you're just backing a horse or backing a squash player purely based on data mm. and that's not data allowance other thing other factors which are around mm. outside the data Wow, uh, Rob, that's flipping awesome to hear. And and I don't know if you come across um, there, there's a great book called Blink, which is I think Malcolm Gladwell, where it's like the like an expert can have two pieces of art, one slightly fake little thing, and within the blink of an eye, they can tell the difference. And and I'm hearing you're kind of feeling like that, or that, like you saying you're sitting at this table with with the algorithms. But it's almost that blink of an eye. But that that comes from experience, like looking at the things, making, yeah. getting errors, but yeah. learning from your errors yeah. time and time again. Am I kind yeah. of correct in thinking that that's yeah, how you process Absolutely. Is? There's also natural gift, uh, and that's not a bit arrogant at all. But I've always had a natural gift for picking up things. Um, it's like squash. You know, some people are just better, more natural gift than others, and the natural gift is it often comes out in different ways. But I mean, I've always had a gift for working things out uh, very quickly and very efficiently, mm-hmm. uh, and generally in the best possible way. Of course, I get things wrong, but generally it works. Mm. No, I like that. I like that idea of, of of learning quickly from your failures. You know, fail, fail fast, and fail forward. And and it sounds like, yeah, I think again, maybe I think I've been guilty of it. Sometimes you think the repetition of something, going actually, it, we need to go deep with this, but actually, you need to have that 
possible zoomed out view going, actually, it might just be the wrong thing. And it sounds like you get that, that right pretty, pretty often in that sense. Um, so I think I, I want to just link this next little bit. And, and, you know, this podcast, like I talked about is exploring the mind. So when I ask you about the mind of a good squash player, you know, we talked about the gambling mind and now you're, you're coaching a lot. What does that look like to you? What can you tell me about if I was to say, Rob, what is the mind of a good squash player? It's an interesting question because, again, I think there's I, I've met most of the best players over the last 40 years and the minds of most of them are very different. So I don't think you just say, oh, you need to do this. That depends on that personality, that individual. I mean, look, there's, there's, there's some things you just look for, you know, that, that mental toughness. You might look for physicality. I mean, you're talking more about the mind, obviously, rather than the actual the other periphery things. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're looking for a toughness. You're looking for a, a clear um, strategy and a, and a brain that thinks very quickly under pressure um, can also make decisions. And when we're on a squash court, you're on the forehand of the back left. There's probably 30 possibilities. You know, so someone like Jan Chacon, to actually get the right one every time, play the right shot at the right time every time, is borderline impossible. So it's very rare you get someone who can actually do that and have that sort of mind that can go through all those possibilities. And a lot of them we just do, we react. We're not actually thinking. Yeah. So, you know, you, you hit a forehand drive down the line, do you hit it flat, drop in the face? How high do you hit the ball? Is it shot? Is it uh, waist height? Is it on the floor? If you're going to play both something, how high do you want the wall? Do it just for the tin? Do it middle of the tin? Um, do it high? So straight away, there's nine possibilities, nine mm. or ten possibilities. Okay, we're in the same position. I can now hit boast. I hit defensive boast, a three wall boast, a two wall boast, a boast with cut. Um, now I play cross court. Another ten possibilities. I can play reverse angle from there. I could step in and volley the ball, which maybe I should have done. So mm-hmm. there are sort of with straight away 40, 50 possibilities from the, from the same position. Okay. Um, the really good minds work it out very, very quickly and they work out the best option. Mm. And the best option for one player might not be the best option for another player. Mm. Ramit okay. Shaw is a very different option from Paul Cole. Mm-hmm. Sarah Jane Perry, she would literally have those sort of 20 different options. She's got too many options and mm-hmm. that overcomplicates things. So like Paul Cole, I've given him probably less options, mm-hmm. but it'll be, it'll be more efficient and he's very. You know, he's very proficient at taking the right option and executing the quality. Mm. Well, I, I've just kind of highlighted a word on my notes here, overthinking. I, I think sometimes the, the the cleverest players can be the worst players, can't they? They're getting in their own yeah. way. So how do you then work with a player? And, and again, you mentioned Sarah Jane Perry, you mentioned Paul Cole, obviously very maybe different characters and we can explore that. Maybe Sarah Jane has the ability to overthink and maybe with Paul, you've you've put some guide rails on him. So what do you think and how do you stimulate the, the fact you want your players to be smart, but you want to actually understand that when they come to execute in that moment, it needs to hit that simple mark. What do you think of that? Again, it depends on the players. I mean, some players I might give simple rules. For example, someone like Paul, I have to say, look, you can't play a volley both. The ball's above shoulder height. You're hitting down the ball. Um, and there's only three possibilities. If, if, you, if you miss your target, it's going to hit the tip. Mm-hmm. If you hit your target, it's a bit high, and it's going to come down at the angle where it sits up. Mm-hmm. Um, and he will just follow those sort of guidelines. SJ is a little bit different because she wouldn't take those guidelines on board in quite the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, and for, it, it's open the mind. It's open the mind to actually what they can achieve and how they want to play. There's no point in me giving them guidelines uh, mentally or physically if it's not how they want to play the game. Sure. You know, it's and that's something I always, I'm always very big on my players. I, they've got to buy into what I'm doing. There's no point mm-hmm. me telling them what to do. You know, it's a discussion and they have to have an open mind and how they want to play the sport. There's no point in SJ just trying to play like Paul Cole because she mm. wouldn't be as good a player. She's not enjoy it and she hasn't got a physical way to do that in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, there's no point trying to get Paul Cole to play like SJ because mm. he also couldn't do that. You know, she has something very special. I mean, she's basically, she's, look, she's five or six in the world and she's not the greatest mover and she's probably barely top 50 in the world movement-wise okay. and yet she still beats the top players mm. which is quite special that just shows just how good she is 
yeah. when she plays well with her racket. She's mm-hmm. basically the best player in the world. Yeah. Because Shabini moves twice well as her. Gohan moves twice as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I'm, and, and Hanya certainly does. <laughs> um, and, and most other girls around her do as well. Yeah. But she, she's got a fantastic sort of, you know, skill. Mm-hmm. Um, the other girls can't compete with. So it's, you know, it's opened their mind to actually what they can do. And as I say, well, I've got 10 players. Every single one is different, Jesse. So there's little mm-hmm. tricks I do. So there's not one fits all thing. And that's, I think sometimes you ask the question, you're sort of looking for an answer that I can't give because there isn't a one fits all policy. Say, so, right, this is how you work with that. Yeah, because Jonah Bryant, I've got Jonah Bryant staying at the moment. I've got Hassan Khalil, he's on board this morning with Summers Wild. Wild. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had other players in this week. Paul and Naylor both came together. Um, I've a lovely young lady called Danielle Latorne came along. Um, you know, and they're all very different, you know, mm-hmm. and some, some are more brittle, some are tough, some need to hear an honest truth, some need an arm around them. Mm-hmm. If, if I spoke to some people in a certain way, they'd burst into tears. <laughs> and other people, you know, that I need to be tougher with. Yeah. Um, and, so and everyone's that's- different. That that that's such a a great thread to maybe pick up on is is again another skill you have to foster as a coach is is the the relationship building how you build those relationships and and that obviously takes time but knowing those characters and knowing what you can say at what moment to what person that can really hit the mark and um again you might admit or not admit this but you might have got it wrong a few times but on the whole you think that you 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 tend to get it pretty right where you can judge the character pretty early and then give them the best advice does anything come to mind along those lines Look, I mean, when I meet somebody for the first time, you have to quickly make assessments. And sometimes you get wrong, so you can't judge a book by its cover. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but I mean, you've got to get to know the person. It's the same when you coach. I always say to coaches, you've got to find out what they want. You know, what they actually want. Um, you know, and as, as, a, as a club coach, you take someone on court and they might say such thing. Now, what people say is often not what they want. And that's something that also people don't realise. So do they want to get fit? Do they want to have a lesson and improve? Because a lot of people actually don't want to improve. They're not bothered about it. They just want to have a lesson. They get fit, mm-hmm. have some fun. They want to have fun. They want to play a game. They want to beat their mate in League 11. So very quickly, you've got to assess what somebody actually wants, you know, from both you and from a session mm-hmm. and from, you know, the experience of being around you. So that's important. You find that out. And you find a lot of that out off the court. Mm-hmm. Um, I spend a lot of time getting to know my players off the squash court, um, either socially, um, in different situations. You learn what they're like under pressure. What, what they like when they're in good time, what they enjoy, mm. the way their mind works. So they've got a sense of humour. They've got no sense of humour. And I've got some players with great sense of humour. And I've got some players who've got very little sense of humour, you know, <laughs> both right. past and present. Uh, most people deep down have a sense of humour. It just mm. doesn't always come out. Um, some people are incredibly serious about it. And they they want everything to be serious. Um, and some people want a bit more fun and enjoy it. Um, so, again, it's just finding out what that person's around, about. And you'll see people, it's generally people, the way they're on a squash court, very much an extension of their personality, I think. Right. So, SJ's personality does come out on a squash court. Um, and, you know, Paul Cole is, you know, he probably blew his personality comes out on a squash court. Um, mine certainly did. Um, I love to play a certain brand of squash because I love mm. playing that brand of squash. Now, I was well aware when I was playing it, it actually wasn't the most successful brand of squash. I'd have been a better player if it walked up and down the wall a bit more. Okay. Um, but I wanted to explore things. I had a great imagination and I wanted mm. to do things with racket. Mm. Um, I wanted to enjoy playing myself. I wanted to entertain. But it was certainly wasn't the best way to play squash. Okay. Um, Paul Cole's got a far more efficient way of playing squash than mm. I ever did. Um, and, you know, in some ways, I have a different talent to Paul. He's got talents mm. that are, you know, Joel making. Mm. Has a lot of ability. They're just not obvious abilities to most of the general public. Mm. You know, the defensive skills of playing squash are huge. There's a lot of skin in that, but it's not recognised and people don't like to see it. Um, any idiot can hit a bloody cross-court nick with fresh air, the ball, fresh air out of the ball. 
Mm-hmm. That's pretty that's pretty similar stuff. And half the time they'll go for it. I mean, look at Mazin Hashem playing Paul Collin World Open. Yeah. Um, I think it was 11 5, 11 naught the first two games. Was, yeah. And um, everyone goes on oh, what an amazing shot for is when he can get the ball off the side wall. Um, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's technically he's very poor. Mm-hmm. His back end is a complete mess. Um, and it broke down consistently. You know, it's great mm-hmm. when it's uh, he's got this wonderful twizzle. Um, I mean, it does well to hit the bloody ball, let alone anything else. I was going to um, say, yeah, it's quite uh, quite impressive when you, I think I was saying to you before we recorded, I would like watch a bit of slow-mo of his back and I'm going, I, I can't actually work out how, how bat meets ball most of the time. Yeah, well, I, I watched it in slow motion. It was still 150 miles an hour. I mean, it was, um, God knows what speed is at full speed. But look, I, I love watching him play. He's exciting. He's, he's, he's fascinating to watch him play. And you never know what's going to happen. So I always enjoy watching people play sports who you never quite know what's going to happen next. Mm-hmm. Um, the bottom line is, unfortunately, he's not going to get to that top level unless he has a sort of swing that's consistent. Now, when he's great, he's great, but it's very hard if you're going to straight swing to hit a ball down the sidewall again and again and again repetitively. Mm-hmm. And that is the sport. Paul Cole can do that. Mm-hmm. Ali Frag can do that. You know, um, the great players of the past, I haven't known one of them, you can't hit a tight, straight ball consistently again and again and again. Mm-hmm. So if you want to be very that. successful... Mm-hmm. It's something you have to do. Ramey Shaw was one of the great sort of length hitters in the game. And hmm. um, most people hmm. recognise that. They think he's one of the great shot players. To me, actually, the be- one of the best lengths I've ever seen. Um, hmm. At different paces on the body, body lobs. Uh, and that's what sets you up to play short stuff. Yeah, and that's what totally. sort of fascinated me. Totally. Well, listen, I think <clears throat> let's go Let's go a little bit deeper and unpack a, a couple of things here. Um, the 2022 British Open, you know, f- phenomenal. I was lucky enough to be there the semis and the finals. We, we briefly said hi to each other. Um, Paul Cole winning that tournament, uh, pretty much three love and just a masterclass. So let's unpack it, Rob. What, what, did, what did you see in that 2022 British Open and, and, and why was it such a, such a success for yourself and Paul? Look, it's obviously, it, as a coach, I suppose the pinnacle because, I mean, I think he's the first guy since Jahangir Khan in the 80s to win every match three love. Mm-hmm. And he had a very, very tough draw as well. You know, when he looked on play the year before, it was the same. Um, he beat all the top players. Um, and this year, he looked even tougher to a certain extent. Um, you know, it, it was really, really tough. All, from first first round through, it was all tough. And then in the quarterfinals, obviously, we, we're prepared in advance. So we sort of, we go through the matches, well, actually the session, in, you know, for each player. Mm-hmm. which I always do. So I do a session, um, you know, to play Mohammed, a session to play Ali, a session to play Diego. Oh, cool. um, yeah. And I sort of think about their strengths and weaknesses and I'll try and hit the ball a little bit like they do. Um, nice. For sure, not as successful as they do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll, I'll attack the ball like they do and I'll think about things then Paul have to react to that and this is how we're going to play Mohammed, or this is how we're going to play Ali, um, you know, and, and this sort of thing. So to actually watch that sort of those game plans and the sort of the quality um, unfold was was unbelievable, really. It was mm. um, a real credit to Paul and the improvements he'd made um, in every aspect of his game, physically, mm. um, mentally. And what was so amazing was it was, it was very Janshin-like, the fact that no matter who he played, nobody could actually do anything against him. Yeah, 100%. Every single person mm. he played, they ended up just not knowing what to do. So mm. Diego, I thought, was an amazing game of squash. Um, mm. The quality was, was immense, the first mm. two games. I mean, look, it, it could have been one all. Um Dave was a fantastic squash player. I love watching Dago play. Mm. You know, I think he's a great squash player. I think he'd be better. Um, his issues are purely physical with Dago. So it's an interesting one because probably a little bit mentally, mm-hmm. he could toughen up. The mental toughness often comes with physicality. Sure. Um, if you've got himself fitter, I think he'd be a bit mentally tougher. And he, he can be tough. He can dig deep, um, Dago. But he's a wonderful, wonderful squash player. Mm. Good you know, ball so striker. Yeah, ball. Nice great ball striker. He, mm. he can hold the ball. He can, he, he's a smooth mover. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got a lot, but he obviously needs to get fitter. Mm-hmm. Um, Asal is different I mean a, a lot of people are saying Asal is the next world champion including myself I think he's a, you know, he's going to be a great squash player mm-hmm. um, but I saw clear weaknesses in his game at the moment 
Um, you know, a lot of big movements, a lot of big lunges, um, very tiring. He throws himself yes. around the court. It's quite loose at times. Mm. Well, um, and, and, and just on that, Rob, can I, can I pick up on that? Because that's something I wanted to investigate, which was when Paul, we're going to using a sal as a frame of reference here. But when Paul come to, came to you, it looked like it looked like hard work. There was the big lunges. There was like the body shape was a bit, you know, off in, in certain aspects. And looking at that British Open, it looked like there was no invitation of any pressure on Paul. The way he firstly mitigated all the pressure by maybe the shot choices. But secondly, by like, I didn't see many big lunges at all. It was just all compact and tight. So w- w- can you talk on that for a second? Yeah, of course. I look, I mean, one of the big things that Paul I did, which we don't recognize, everyone talked about his swing and changed his forehand. And then, of course, with those things. Well, the first thing I did, though, I said, look, we've got to sort your movement out. Um, he was perceived as certain other players as being a very good mover. I thought he was a very poor mover. I thought he was a fantastic athlete, but a very poor mover. I thought he wasn't balanced. Um, you know, no one has ever done the splits economically. Uh, if you keep doing that move again, they're getting <laughs> tired. And the problem is, I saw John making play the other day, you know, and when he was, he was doing not as big lunges, and he, I think he dived 10 times. And the problem really? is, he last steps at if your last step is a big lunge and you mm. can't get it, your next move is a dive. It's mm. as simple as that. Whereas if you're balanced and you can't quite get it, you're doing a big lunge, then you're getting the ball back. So, you know, to me, players need to be far more balanced than ball, um, you know, quicker footwork, mm. um, understanding the position they need to be in to hit a good shot. And of course, movements and ball striking and quality of shot, quality uh, of shot go hand in hand because the better you hit the ball and the tighter the ball in the, in the back corners, the less you have to move anyway. Mm. So, you know, let's be very clear that you know, somebody who's opened the court up and the other guy's got four options. You can't cover it no matter how good you are. Mm-hmm. You're going to do a lot of work, you know, like, you know, lunging around and all this mm-hmm. sort of stuff. So the, the quality of shot is absolutely critical to the movements. But of course, the swing um, and the movement go hand in hand as well, which is improving, sure. you know, very important because that you have to be very smooth in the ball. Mm-hmm. And then you have to be able to move off the ball quickly and onto the ball quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I want people to be gliding around. Support looks like he's walking around. It does. Now. Yeah, it's just Great crazy. Great like walking around. You know, I've always mm-hmm. sort of modelled what I've done with Jansha. And mm-hmm. He was the best we I ever saw. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, and there's been lots of great movers. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, there's been great movers the last 10 years. Mm. And and well, a very similar thing. Um, Ali Farag luckily said to me uh, that everyone says he's such a good mover. He goes, but if you just rewind the couple of shots I've done before I'm moving well, he plays a game that's aligned to let him move well. And I think Paul has now taken yeah. that and just and kind of almost just put it on a higher shelf yeah. in a way. He's again that that's when when, when I coach the juniors and I use obviously Paul a lot now as a reference point. I'm going. Look, guys, here's a sniff of pressure. Paul's in a little bit of a tr- bother here. Guess where that ball's going? It's going either high, it's going tight, and it's just there's there's a complete uh, mitigation of any further pressure that happens. He doesn't get it perfect every time, of course, but that for me is yeah. what's been fundamental from world number four or five and securing his world number one position. Yeah. I know he's just dropped off now, but you know I could see him getting back up there very quickly. Yeah, look, I, I, Ali and Paul are different movers. Um, Ali's incredibly natural. You know, his is a very, very natural movement. Um, one of Paul's things he's done is he tends to play the right shot when he's under pressure and the right shot when he's actually in out ball. So that's helped his moves a lot. Mm. Um, he's got very, very smooth. He's obviously very strong. Mm. Um, he doesn't use that as much now because he's not, uh, he's strongly down the position, but he's not doing those big lunges and stuff. You know, when I used yes. to watch Dolce and some of these guys, he did a lot of big lunges. You know, as, um, is doing a lot of big lunges. And to me, that's very, very hard on the body. Um, you want to have a long career. That's not the way to a long career. You know, people like James have very long careers because A, he's such a good squash player, but B, say that, that fluidity of movement is, is so important. Um, but I do think the players generally now, I've seen a few of the players, they're just taking too many big lunges. So yeah. I've seen people not far off the tee and yet they're still doing a lunge. I mean, you should only a lunge if you're really stretched out in the front corner. Um, or, or you've been sent the wrong way. Obviously, that happens. But there's a lot of players now, their second step is just too big. Mm-hmm. Um 
And therefore, we only have one option or two options when they actually hit the ball as well. They're not the best position to hit the ball. Um, and you need to understand where the purpose is to hit a ball. A lot of people don't understand those fundamental basics of the game. Yeah. Um, but the movement thing is absolutely critical to that. And anybody can move easily. I mean, when I hit a ball, the reason I hit the ball well is because I'm really balanced. I know exactly where I'm trying to hit the ball. So mm. I'll hit a good shot. Um, you know, I still hit the ball reasonably well compared to most of my players um, mm. because I'm balanced in the ball. Mm. Um, and Paul Cole has taken that on board. Actually, when she's balanced, it's a beautiful squash ball. Mm. The challenge for her is to get into that position. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, and how do you anybody, how do you how do you do that with your players? Is that pressure session based? There's or do you just get them to ghost it? What when you say balance, great word. How and what do you ask them to be balanced? Is it kind of the shoulders under the hips? Is it the head position? Is it the feet? What 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 do you investigate there? Look, like they need to understand when we take the ball. Is the first thing. Is it in front of you? Is it the is it front leg? Is it the middle? Is it behind you? So that's a fundamental which they need to understand where they need to. They need to understand how to get there. Mm-hmm. I will often get players a little bit of ghosting. Some people at the moment I've got ten, twelve players where it is. Um, they all move slightly differently, and everyone has their own little intricacies uh, where they all move slightly differently. And there's no point trying to change that. It works sometimes, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but generally, which leg they take the ball on. Um, if they cut the ball off on the back right, it'll be on their right leg, generally for the back wall. They'll yep. be taking off the left leg and it's coming off the back wall and they've got time to get a nice setup. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, are, are they going to rack it up quick enough as well? Because racket preparation with, with moving the footwork is very, very important. If the racket comes off as soon as you start to move, the racket's really, the, the, the foot will then hit the floor and then they're hitting the ball as the ball hits the floor with the foot behind it and then balance. Ali does that brilliantly well. Mm. Not many people stretch behind the ball. He can be in sort of, not in the front, but um, sort of five, six foot, foot in front of the tee and then he'll suddenly back right behind the service box, stretching his right leg out, balanced with his racket up and hitting the cross court back across his opponent yes. as they're still back in the tee. Now that sort of stuff is, it's clever. You watch it and just watch the footwork and the patterns mm. of footwork. People have different patterns. There's a lot of rubbish talked about sort of movement and footwork. Mm-hmm. Um, it's pretty similar stuff, but I think ghost things to start with, but also mm-hmm. don't try to go ghost quickly. Yeah. Ghost sort of 70% and get the patterns right first, get it efficient, get it smooth, and as you get that smooth, speed it up. Uh, mm-hmm. If people ghost too quick, it becomes very poor, becomes ragged, um, on the wrong foot, they're not balanced, um, and they lose the quality. And also when talking ghosting, I was lucky enough to obviously be with Jonah Barrington, started my career and uh, Joan invented ghosting so I had the privilege of watching him ghost and it was like watching a rally you know I really? see people ghost and it's it, it's yeah it, it's it doesn't look like a rally they're not watching where the ball's going they're not thinking about the next shot when you're, when you're ghosting try and play the right shot you're on the volley and the guy's back right play a volley straight drop hmm. you know um, if you're under pressure doing a lunge don't counter it back to yourself sometimes just lift the ball up Try and ghost how you're playing a game and get the mm. movements right. I think people Send forgot that, didn't they? Yeah. I think, I think when Jonah yeah. introduced it, it was it was very deliberate what he was doing. And then everyone was like, oh, brilliant. This is a great fitness tool. And it's like, oh, guys, you're missing the message here. It's kind of, you know, yeah. the, the, I'm really glad to hear you say that because the technical side of ghosting, yeah, for me, it's yeah. like, if you want to get fit, do you know what? There's a whole bunch of other things, which uh, ghosting could yeah. be part of it. But ghosting's priority should be what I'm hearing you say. is, But, but is it's not it. just physical as well. And it's not just movement. It's actually mm. a swing. It's actually a chance to hit the ball, rack okay. it up, where you hit the ball, get mm-hmm. balanced, you know, think about the quality shot you're hitting. Um, there should be a purpose behind every single shot when you're ghosting. Mm-hmm. Not just when you're hitting a swash ball, do it when you're ghosting as well. That Love attention that. to detail. Love Absolutely that. critical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. So um, going back to the British Open for a little bit, um, you've obviously had a bit of time to reflect with Paul and you've obviously seen it in an amazing event. You know, obviously winning something like that, really pinnacle. At that point with Paul, do you kind of go, actually, just keep doing what you're doing? Or is there iterations? Is actually still some things you need to work on? How did that conversation go post-British Open with him? 
I mean, look, it, it, it was, we went off the subject slightly, but I mean, it, it, it was just phenomenal. You know, every single match was almost perfect. Um, it couldn't have gone better. He looked like a player. He looked like a player at the top at the top of his game. Mm-hmm. Um, he really did. I mean, yeah, and it wasn't perfect because, of course, he made some mistakes. Um, there were some shots that were wrong shots in. So you can always improve on performance, um, but it'd be very hard to improve a lot on that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's keeping the player out of peak. But every time Paul comes over, there's always something we tinker with. You know, and it, it might be his prep has gone a bit slow, or he's moved his wrist in the wrong position, or he's, you know, it, it's a little bit too flat on something, or he's, you know, he's not playing the cut across the court in quite the right way. So we're always sort of thinking, we're always trying to improve. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as the sort of shots, you know, he's got everything he needs now. The mm-hmm. arm is there. Um, I've introduced a lot of little softies over the years. They've made quite a difference in you know, the triple bows to me, never done in his life. Um, and he, you know, you've got to remember when you have a variety, Jesse, as well. If, yeah. if there's too much variety, the variety becomes a normal. What you want is some of the basic game structure, and the variety is done once every 10 minutes or once every seven minutes. Then that's a variety, and that's very difficult to play against Yeah, because it's very unexpected. And you throw that in, suddenly you play a triple bows once a game. Mm. There's people out there playing a triple bows eight times a game, or a mm. bows, whatever it might be, or a boast. You throw in occasionally, and it becomes a real variety. Mm. You throw in too much, it becomes a norm, and it isn't actually predictable or a variety. Yes, it's a norm, and that's a weakness. Mm. And there's a lot of players, you know, I'm not the name of other players, but they just hit the ball all over the place, and it's just mm. random. Yep. But actually, if you look at people who play very randomly, there's always a pattern. And so, from certain positions, they'll be doing a random shot, which isn't random because there's a pattern which you yep. probably wouldn't see, or a lot of you don't actually look at those patterns because they don't look close enough. But most of the people who are sort of random, they they have patterns. I was mm. quite random, but I had a pattern. So, from certain positions, it was just unusual compared to what most people did. But for me, that was a norm. Mm. And if you watch close enough, and I watch these guys closely, there's certain positions, I'm not going to give it away what certain mm-hmm. people do, mm-hmm. but there's certain positions, certain people do the same thing. Yep. Um, yep. And it might be a couple of options, but if they're, there's little telltale signs of what they're going to do. You see what's happening, so, yeah. And, and the one shot is onto my play, that's helpful. Mm. Yeah, no, I, yeah, again, obviously, yeah, no, there's no one second we're asking for any of that advice here, but there's that one shot I think I'm seeing Paul really bring into his game is that little thin kind of cross court, isn't it? It's not quite a cross court yeah. drop. It's that, yeah. and again, just, but it's, it's, it's like the threat and options he has of the other shots. Yeah. And that's, you know, yeah, he'll yeah. approach the ball and all of a sudden he's got those two basic shots to drop in a drive. And then there's yeah. that little thin pull across the court. And Well, that, that cross across the court is one of my favourite shots. I've always loved it. No one seems to coach it. And I've, I've, it's interesting, I think my clinic and uh, switch and nice and to demonstrate it. It was the, the East thing. Not one of them could do it. Um, <laughs> and there was either the, the football, it wasn't open enough. Um, it, the height of the ball was wrong. It's a very specific way to play that shot. But the thing I say to my players, you play it once, and it works uh, effectively. The player then, your opponent has to cover that for the rest of the match, which opens at the rest of the course, or actually opens at the back of the course, opens up other areas you're not thinking about. So it, having that sort of option there, once you've done it once, they've got to cover it, the triple bows. You do that once, they have to cover it. Um, there's also a little sort of um, uh, cross-court drop that you can only hit when it's a three-one-nick boast. Uh, it almost floats up, it looks like yes. a lob. Yeah. I've talked to that, and that's, that takes, that's difficult technically, because you have to understand the technique of it, and... Yeah, you see, you're doing it wrong, suggestion. That's wrong. <laughs> Thanks, Rob. It, it needs to be flat. Okay. It needs to be underneath the ball. And he has to okay. lift up like a lob. So I'll show you. when you come down, I'll show you. Brilliant. It's very difficult. I've never seen anybody coach it. Um, okay. Mainly I don't know how to coach that thing. So most Amazing. of the players can't do it. Um, and I only want to get to a certain level. I'll show them that sort of stuff. Mm. It's very, very difficult. And if it comes off, you look like a bit of a twat, to be quite honest. <laughs> if it doesn't come off, you know, you, you can look, look like an idiot. Genius. Yeah. Um, yeah, if it comes off, you look fantastic. Um, and Paul's done in a few big matches and it's been brilliant. He, he does that once a match. Yeah. Once a yeah. match. In the, only in the, He knows exactly when he should do it and only do it once a match. Occasionally so cool. twice. 
Um, and it's just a nice little thing as a coach. It's satisfying watching Matt Morrison mm. that comes in, mm. and it, it might be nine or something does that, mm. and it's just an outright win. And it looks so easy, so simple. Yeah, the ball just dropped down, float off the front wall, very sort of delicate drop. Don't, never hits the neck; it always bounces twice. Mm. It's a very cute angle, mm. drags the player right in. So, so things like that as a coach are quite satisfying. You know, nobody else is doing it. Mm. Um, exactly. You know, some then- occasionally over the last ten years, people think nationally, but very few. Mm. Well, that links me really nicely to, we had a little bit of a, a chat offline, which I think might really nicely link to the British show is, you know, you talked about some of the players that you work with and, and it's more about the um, the ability for them to take on the knowledge quickly and absorb the knowledge quickly. And then, you know, Paul and what he did at the British was maybe the accumulation of that the few years he's been working with you now and take you on that knowledge really quick. So if we're going back into the mind what what how do you help players take on that knowledge quick and what are you looking for for players and how do you encourage them you know you've got something you see in them you you go right this is really going to help you what if there's a bit of a a block with the the player's ability to take on the knowledge it sounds like paul takes on the knowledge quickly so thoughts on that rob again uh, different players are very different i mean i think you have to be very careful not to overcomplicate you know especially if you're talking if you're talking about a, a, a game plan now for a match um you don't want too much information you want it to be pretty simple um, again, it depends who you're playing. I mean, if, if one of my players I feel is better uh, than the person they're playing, I won't worry too much about the, the player they're playing. I'll, I'll point out a couple of little things. Maybe we'll don't put the ball there or, you know, he's got a very good sort of little trickle bow to the front right or wherever it might be. But I'll basically worry, think about my player and how they're going to play. Because I know if they play well and the other opponent plays well, they're going to win. Mm-hmm. Now, if I have a player, I think, well, actually, you know what? If you play well and the, person, the other person plays well, you're going to lose that match. I'll be, worried, I'll be thinking more about them, how to stop them playing well. And it'll be a specific game plan and it might be a game plan that might not necessarily suit them, but it gives them a chance of winning. There's no point me giving them a game plan that they can't win with and playing well. I want to give them a game plan. So it might be a game plan they lose three love, but it will also be a game plan they have a chance of winning if they get executed well and play like that. Um, so that's an important thing with game plans. I think a lot of people, and we talked earlier about different players having different game plans, although they're playing the same opponent. Sure. So, you know, so I've, I've had a good example. Jimmy Kennedy played SJ. Um, and Naila Gillis. Mm-hmm. Naila Gillis and SJ had a completely different game plan to play uh, Gina Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Because if, 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 if Naila had SJ's game plan and SJ had Naila's game plan, guess what? They both lost three love very quickly. It mm-hmm. wouldn't have worked at all. Um, whereas a lot of coaches, they say, well, this is the game plan is Gina Kennedy. I see. They weren't actually thinking about their play enough, I don't think. Um, I think they worry too much about that game plan. And you've got to allow for the player. Mm-hmm. But going back to the question of, of how do you do that, I mean, some people want more information. Um, some people want less. Um, generally, I think it, it's, it's keeping it simple, have an open mind. Mm-hmm. Again, that's fundamental. We talked about earlier, knowing the person is absolutely critical. Um, you know, do they get nervous? Are they confident? Are they overconfident? Are they aggressive? Do you need to calm them down? Do you need to make them relaxed? There's all these different factors you think about when you're talking to somebody. Um, and some people, they, they need a bit less confidence. They're overconfident. Some need to be built up a little bit. They're very nervous. Um, you know, how do you get around that sort of issue? Mm-hmm. Um, some people get too much obsessed with the result. Um, rather than actually thinking about the process and thinking about playing quality squash and the result will happen. Mm. Um, some people are great for a game and pull for a game. Um, mm. And again, they're all different. Obviously, at the top level, when you start doing this like Paul, it becomes mm. much easier because he's the best player in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so he can follow instructions very, very well. And he also has the skill to implement it. Mm-hmm. You know, in some players, you give an instruction, for whatever reason, they might not be able to do it on yeah. the day. They, get, mm. they either get nervous or they get tired or the opponents are stopping them doing that. Mm. Um, Paul, at the moment, is good enough to be able to implement just about every game plan. Yeah. Um, there's not many people who can stop him doing what he wants to do and how he wants to play because he's, mm. he's a better player. 
Mm. And what you just touched on that process versus outcome debate, which I think is worth exploring here a little bit, because someone like Paul, obviously he wants to win every title. You know, the, the outcome is a super important aspect in his life. But how do you get that balance right of, yes, you want that 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 edge to win matches and tournaments, but actually it's the process and what you're doing with your game plan that's ultimately going to lead to the outcome, isn't it? How do you navigate that with your players then? Look, there is. I mean, you'd like to think that every player you're coaching is prepared. You know, so there's a lot of muscle memory. You know, if they've got enough, you know, the ball comes in a certain position, it's on your racket, you're going to play a straight while they drop their out position. You know, you're going to put the ball in, cut it in, the racket comes up, bang, you don't even think about it sometimes. You know, you've done that. You know, been there many times, and the players have been there many times. Mm. You you have, and without thinking about it, you you play your foot. You know it's the right shot. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you just back yourself. And if they've done enough practice, all my players do a lot solo. Um, and I'd like to think that if the ball comes to a certain position, they know what they should be doing. Um, I mean, the game is pretty simple, really, isn't it? You know, you put the ball away yes. from the opponents. If they're behind you on the, on the back right, the ball's going front left mm-hmm. pretty quickly if you get an opportunity to put it in there. Whether that be a boast. Uh, a cross court volley or or a straight volley drop on the on the on the backhand side. That's where the ball's going to go. So a lot of things become very obvious, and a lot of that is just practice, um, and it's repetition doing mm-hmm. it again and again and again. Overthinking is always a problem. Um, playing differently on on game points and match balls when it's tight. And the really great players they play better, don't they, at nine or ten or I mean, yeah. look, I look at Shabili, and it always amazes me how many sort of very very difficult shots she plays on big points. And her her success rate is probably ninety percent. Hmm. You know, I never expected when I when I'm um, hit the ball well, I'm, I don't expect to miss. I'm surprised when I do miss. I think a lot of players actually expect to miss, and therefore they do miss. You know, when I, hmm. you know when I play a shot, I'm absolutely I'm pretty angry when I miss it. So I'm furious. So I don't expect to go down, and that's a mentality more people need to have. You know, I'm absolutely I'm pretty surprised. I'm gobsmacked when one of my balls goes down. I'm feeling even if it's tricky um, because I know it's the right shot. I've practiced it a million times. Um, and I expect that ball to go up. And that's the same, what, that's what I expect from my players. They have that confidence. Yeah. It's the right shot, you play it. And when people get edgy, there's nothing worse. That's when they make mistakes. You know, SJ had a game ball against uh, Shabini um, last week um, uh, to go to all. You know, she had a game ball and she played the horrendous backhand body drop, completely the right shot, didn't move her feet, took the ball at the wrong height, cut down it from too steep, and the ball hit virtually hit the floorboard. Mm-hmm. Now, we had a session this week with 30 of those, and she missed one. Okay, you know, so this is what you're talking about, really, isn't mm, it? Is that mentality, yeah, yeah. and that's an individual thing. But it's that clear thought process of actually removing all those other factors out of the equation. Where this is game point, this is Shabini, this is to go to all. This is just another shot that I've hit a million times. Yeah, I'm not even thinking about anything else. And they hit that ball, visualizing that ball going up, and it's going to go up. Mm. And that's. Um... Yeah, so, so obviously playing with much more of the tactical brain rather than the emotional brain. I think that's a, a lot of players get that wrong in the stories we're telling ourselves going, oh, yes, yeah. we're taking this to a fifth or we're on the semifinal of the British Open. And and and, and, and it's hard, isn't it? Because you're, you're working with the, the players right at the cutting edge that that's that's yeah. that's their life. They, they, they want to get those titles. They want to become legend statuses. But how do you quiet that part of the brain when it's really under pressure? And I think you've answered parts of it is, is those conversations. It's, it's reinforcing the, the messages, isn't it? Yeah, it's experience. I mean, look, I'm under pressure every day. So every bet I do is potentially going to cost me 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 5,000 pounds. So every decision I make costs me. I either win or I lose. It's as simple as that. You know, and the more those decisions you do, you get a confidence. Look, I know I'm going to win over a period of time. So that mm-hmm. obviously gives you confidence. And if, if you do that shot over a period of time, 
You know you get more up than you are down. That's why you're number two in the world, number 10 in the world, whatever it is. You know, you know over a period of time you are going to hit that. So have that confidence. You know, as I say, you know, I, I've had some horrific days sort of betting where, um, I mean, my worst, I lost 65,000 pounds, um, you know, which is a reasonable sum of money. Um, I've always had days where I've, I've won six-figure sums. Um, you know, so I've been betting in big stakes for a lot of money. I backed a horse with a half million pounds once, and they've got B by half a length. Um, you know, so so we're talking large sums in, and that's it brings a pressure, but I'm very cool and calm under pressure. Um, that's another thing. I don't get excited when I win, I don't get excited, I couldn't care less. Um, it's just another transaction, it's another thing, it goes in your account, that's it, and it's gone. I get a bit more pissed off when I lose, to be honest. Um, but I mean, it's keeping a level head and a clear head under pressure. Mm. Um, and when you just keep losing, you have to have that belief in that process. It's like when Jonah played Jeff Hunt in that big show, famously, and he was nine of down, four of down after 40 minutes, and he only got a point. Yep. You know, then he had that mental belief to win. And, you know, obviously, I talked about that match, you know, and he still thought he 100% thought he was going to win that match at nine of four of down. Hmm. Now, there's not many people who do that. I'm not sure I'd do that. Hmm. Um, it must have felt like you're hitting against a brick wall after 40 minutes hmm. um, and not getting a point. And yet, he still had that mental fortitude and belief, more importantly, hmm. and to it, come back and win that match. And, and it sounds like you, you actually share this with your players, obviously, your experiences and, and kind of those high stakes you're in and kind of the maybe the pressure and the ups and downs and, and how you can actually go, hey, guys, this is what I'm doing. And can we transport that into the high stakes of a, of a squash environment? It sounds like you do that quite regularly, do you? It's, it's, it's very similar. I mean, all my players sit next to me. Um, you know, they'll tell you, you know, Dave, I do shout out and they'll swear word disappear now and again. <laughs> um, you know, I get the hump, you know, for like if I have three horses in a row, four, and there's some actual miracle story, but that's, that's what I do. That's the nature mm. I do. So you have to accept that mm-hmm. uh, or, or I wouldn't do it. Yeah. But I mean, they, they watch me perform under pressure. Um, I put pressure on myself. Um, I have very, very high expectations. I expect to win. Um, I do win. Um, but it's the same as squash. It's the same every business I'm involved with. Nice. Um, I put pressure on myself. Um, so I think it's important to put pressure on yourself. There's mm. no point being too laid back, mm-hmm. whereby it doesn't matter. It, it, there's, there's no point fooling yourself. When you're playing the semi-finals of Rich Open, it does matter, you know, and it is different. So you've got to learn to cope that experience and you've got to find a way. As you yeah. say, you never quite know how players are going to react to it until you actually see them. Mm. I do see at a young age, you know, some of my players, you see some people have that sort of mental fortitude far more than other people. Mm-hmm. You know, we all know players are a little bit soft than others, but you can learn it and you can mm-hmm. toughen up. When you get physically better, I think, again, that makes a difference to your mentality because you know you put all that work and you've done it in practice and, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a cliche, but your training matches and your training should be hard on your, your, your tour matches. 100%. And if they are, generally are, and you're putting that sort of thing in, you know you can do it. You've been there. And once you've well, been well... Yeah, it's, a, yeah. it's that Na- Navy SEALs quote, you don't rise to the occasion, you fall to the level of your training. I think that's yeah. just a real good way to look at it. If, you, if we talk, talk about that physical element, really raising your mental element as well, I think that's yeah. Yeah, super powerful. I mean, look, I think most people as well, they, they, get, they actually, very, very few people, um, they, they, they crack mentally before they crack physically. Because the body can be pushed a lot more than people think. We see the incredible endurance events and things like that, where people are doing astonishing things to their body, you know, Above and beyond, and the hmm. very few squash players put, push themselves. The mind normally goes for the body. Yeah, um, very, very rarely you see a player stretched off court. Hmm. You know, I mean, there's there's not many at the moment at all. I see stretch, literally stretched off, and no. you know they're cramping up. They're bloody this and that, and hmm. you know you hear the story of Jeff Hunt was pissing blood for two days after that British Open game. Yeah, you know, extraordinary to push your body to those is. limits. You know, I've certainly never pushed my body to that limit, um, hmm. and that's rare. I wouldn't expect many people to do that, but generally the mind goes before the body. Yeah, no, hundred percent. There's actually some good articles and in, in, in yeah, mind over body about endurance marathon runners and stuff. But um, we're going to take a little bit of a transition here, Rob. Now, um, so we're going to kind of fast forward to the World Open, recent World Open 2022 that just happened, and uh, some yeah. some. 
Uh, do we, we, don't, we don't, if you don't want to. <laughs> yeah, we do. No, of course I do, yeah, of course. I'm yeah. Like, so, um, really have to talk about that because it's important you. to talk about these. Yeah. I won't say, I won't even use the word failure because it wasn't a failure. Mm. Um, you know, it was, uh, there was, and it wasn't just Paul, there was some great success in that. So no, I'm very happy to talk about the world. Over. Great. So, so, so for me, I think the good place to kick off was, um, you know, that, that recent article you wrote a few days um, before, and it obviously didn't get received that well in some corners. Um, again, I think we've had a bit of a chat and, and I didn't necessarily think there was anything massively inflammatory about it initially. I think you, you spoke the truth saying that if Paul on his, uh, if he's a little bit off his day, he could lose to three players. If he's a little bit more off his day, he could lose to 15 players, but obviously sparked a little bit of a debate and a bit of an interest. So, um, where do you want to take this, Rob? What, what's your thoughts okay, on what, that? What, what I wrote that article, I, I, I knew it's next. One thing I always do is always speak the truth and always be honest. And I think these, I think squash needs more of that honesty. I think it's very, very important. We, we need to be honest. Um, say it how it is. Um, that was my opinion, but although it was my opinion, it was actually very factual. Um, there was nothing there. You read it yourself. I've spoke to several people um, whose opinion I respect. They all thought oh, that's bloody good. You know, it's, it's good to hear that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a few home truths, and sometimes players, you know, they're almost trying to convince themselves. Um, and a few of them wouldn't have liked it. I mean, obviously, Mohammed said publicly what he said, um, and I had no problem with what Mohammed said at all. I didn't take it personally. Um, I said what I said about Mohammed, and he actually did surprise me. You know, I'm, I'm the first I got it wrong. Um, although, in some ways, I didn't get it wrong because I said, I think I'll be surprised to see him play two or three matches that are really tough and physical. Mm-hmm. And he couldn't. He played one match. He played Paul. Mm-hmm. And Paul clearly wasn't his best because of that Bruce going to Tarek. So mm-hmm. Paul was probably 10% off his best. But that's squash. That's the nature of the beast. And that's what it's about winning a world open. You know, yeah. you're going to play matches when you're tired. Um, Mohammed took advantage of that, and he, he dug deep in that match at Paul. And I, did, you know what? I was really pleased to see Mohammed back. Mm. Um, the game wants Mohammed back. You know, I, I've loved watching Mohammed. I've been a massive admirer of Mohammed. I like the guy. Um, what I said about him wasn't personal in any way at all. It was purely factual. He's been pretty shit for 18 months. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he did the first all his hands up. Yeah. I thought he'd made some mistakes his training. Um, I thought his moves had got worse. I just said that. So obviously, Mohammed used that to inspire him, apparently, for the semi-finals world over. My view is that if you can't get inspired for the semi-finals world over, you've got a problem. You shouldn't need Rob Owens inspired to, to build you up the semi-finals of the, of the world open. It's the biggest tour in the bloody world. So don't mm. let me fire you up. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, got under the skin a little bit, um, which is one of those things. And Mohammed, to be fair to him, has apologised to me since. He okay. said a few things that maybe he shouldn't have said, which is great. Um, and all I said to him after he, uh, after he said those words in his speech, I just said, look, well played, Mohammed. It's a great match. Um, good luck in the final and look forward to catching up soon. Wow. And that was it. Mm. You know, that was my view on it. You know, I, I, he, he played very well. He deserved to win that match, clearly. Paul has a chance at two on five, three. Yeah. You know, Mohammed did various things and he got to ball a little bit. Um, but it was it was a great match. It was exciting. It was, it was exciting. Um, mm. And, you know, as I was Jenny, please see Mohammed back. And I, I like the guy. I mean, I, mm. uh, you know, I don't know what Diego thought about my comments. I said, Jay, about Diego, he's not fit enough. Well, guess mm. what? He's not fit enough. Mm. Um Will he ever get fit enough? I don't know. I hope he mm. does because he's a fantastic squash player. Interesting to know deep down if, if Diego reflects, if that's actually what he knows, maybe on the surface he doesn't want to say it. He's not stupid. He's a clever bloke. He's, mm. These guys aren't stupid. Of course, Diego knows he's not fit enough. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he'll be out there having a beer for telling him when he's not fit enough, <laughs> um, which is fine. Um, I like him. He's, he's a social. I don't know Diego well at all. Paul's mm-hmm. very, very good friends. Him. He is. Mm. Everyone says he's a lovely lad. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a great squash player, a huge admirer of him. But he's not fit enough. Mm-hmm. So all I said was he's not fit enough. Um, Ali had a couple of weaknesses, which Paul's exposed. I think Ali's mm. the, the last ten games they played, Ali's got one, right. and a lot of wow. those games have been eleven fives, eleven sixes. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, there's some obviously some weaknesses there that Paul's exploited. But Ali, you know, I've got a huge respect for Ali, uh, mm-hmm. Ali Frag. Um, 
you know, he, he's an amazing squash player. I love the bloke. Mm. He carries himself with a real credit. I think he's he an did. ambassador of the game. Mm. Um, and what's really impressive about him is when he's lost, you know, the spirit he's taken it. He's the first to congratulate me. Um, mm-hmm. You know, couldn't be a better ambassador for our sport. I think mm. he's a fantastic world and one. Yeah. Um, he's a great squash player. And again, it was nothing personal at all. With any of the mm. comments I made, they're purely factual and they're all proven right. Uh, well, Rob, really well said. Thank you for sharing your your thoughts on that. I think, um, yeah, hopefully people listening can can really understand where you came from. Which, again, just on my own personal view, they were they were true but strong words. It wasn't again, it wasn't anything that I thought was oh my goodness, like you've completely destroyed someone's character in the sense. And but obviously, it can get taken the wrong way by some people. And yeah, it's, Jesse, it's, let me tell you, for me, they were not strong words. If I wanted to be stronger, I'd be a lot stronger. <laughs> you know, I said a lot more, but a lot more detail and being a lot stronger. You know, but uh, I just kept it simple. Um, and look, I stuck my head above a parapet. I'm there to be yeah. shot down by certain people. You know, and mm-hmm. I think squash needs more of that. I think there's a lack of character in the game. There's not enough people sort of saying things like I say, and people want to hear actually what's happening. Mm. You know, there's no more me bullshitting and saying they're all brilliant when they're not. Mm-hmm. Um, I could do that all day long and saying this and that and it was just a factual article that was asked my opinion of what was actually happening in the game at the moment which I gave and right. it's, you know if people want me to shoot me down for being honest about that and saying my point of view that's fine you know I don't mind that I'm big enough to take that he didn't put any pressure on Paul Cole that article mm-hmm. at all which people Mohammed made out he did absolute rubbish the bloke walks around with bloody Superman on his back you know? you know if you're walking around with a t-shirt saying Superman every time you play that's a bit more pressure on you you know Paul was well aware of what I said, and that's fine. If anything, mm-hmm. Paul doesn't need any more confidence. He just won a British Open, three love, three love, three love, three love. <laughs> exactly. What more do you need? Don't meet something, he's good. You know, he's just fantastic. Mm. So that mm. was it. It was, you know, it wasn't a big deal to me. It was said, I'll do the same thing again um, tomorrow if they ask me. Well, let's see. Um, hopefully, kind of the rising tide lifts all ships now. Let's see what happens. And obviously, hopefully, if Paul and maybe the other players lift a little bit and, and, and just the whole game gets better for it as well. And just staying with the World Open very briefly, um, when, when people have asked me a little bit about it, I say, you know what, I think, and you, I think, agree, why Paul didn't win it? I think it was, what, maybe 10-8, two love up, 10-8 against Tarek in the quarterfinal. Maybe that was the point. If that was seen to bear the three love, possibly the whole thing would have just opened up. What do you think about that quarterfinal match where Paul didn't quite see it through in, in Look, less time? I, I thought, Tarek, first and foremost, I thought Tarek Mahon was fantastic. You know, he, he was, he was well, magnificent defeat. Well. Probably one of the best matches I've seen him play. Um, uh, I'm not sure who agrees that or not, but it was a superb game of squash. Um, Paul was probably slightly off. I mean, it's, it's tough playing there, 35 mm-hmm. degrees outside. It, it's... Um, Certain players, they're not going to be quite as good in those conditions. I mean, there's a bit of wind blowing around. And to be fair, that doesn't suit Tarek's game either, you know, because if he's a bit of wind going around, he floats the ball in a lot and it's going to be affected by the wind. Um, but I mean, Tarek didn't miss going short hardly. Normally, mm-hmm. normally a few of those would be higher, so Paul could tap the ball more. And there'd also be a few more mistakes. He made very few errors, but even playing that well, Paul still two looks and eight. Interestingly, Jesse, and not many people know this, um, Paul, uh, Tarek asked for less. I think it was a 10 9 match ball. It was. Uh, looking for stroke. Um, uh, referee gave a let now it was one of those ones that these days they normally have no lets they had loads of time to play if you're looking for stroke fishing a little bit be quite honest and Tarek probably holds something to accept that mm-hmm. um, and I've since heard that from um, a very good source who directly asked the video referee if that had been reviewed he would have given a no let match wow. to call wow. so I that was a mistake I, I looked at that closely I was like wow okay that's an interesting and then okay well thanks for kind of saying that that's really interesting because it did look the way that you said the no let side rather than yeah, the, the most people thought it was a no let um, and 
you know, Paul has to, and that's something where you can improve. You know, we talk about the, the tactical things or the, or, the, or the technique or new shots. Well, let's start reviewing a ball, Paul. You know, mm. let's start putting a few reviews in there. Because he doesn't Paul, review pretty much, Paul, doesn't he? he? Does he does he use it at the right time? Because he's very, he's such a gentleman on the court. He's He holds himself so well, but possibly the reviewing at just at the wrong moments, is that kind I mean, of biting him? Ten, ten, nine match ball, that's a free bet. Because, I mean, at 10 or we have another review anyway. So that's, if you're ever going to review, that is a time for you. Because it was never there. It was never going to be a stroke. Um, and probably he wasn't thinking quite as clearly as he maybe should have done. He should have reviewed that. At the same time, I'm well aware he's trying to stay in the focus and in the zone of what he's trying to do. But look, I have a clear policy reviews. I mean, SJ is probably one of the worst reviewers in the world because <laughs> uh, she's instinctive. She doesn't think about it. And go straight at review, please. Um, and she doesn't think. W- what I say to my players, um, especially early on, um, first half of the game, Try not to use the review. I would say if you're 80% sure the decision will be overturned, so it was a stroke, turn to the left, you're 80% sure of that, review. If you're less than 80% sure, don't review. The reason being is 80 on lose your review, eventually if late, important point at 9, 8 or 10, or 10 9. Um, and also, um, again, this is human nature. If you were to be a review guy and he, his mate just given a no let, he's going to be very sure in his own mind to overturn that. And they won't like to hear that, but trust me, they're influenced by their mate. Yeah. Um, they will try and back them up. So therefore, you need to be 80% sure. Because if the, if the amount of times I thought there's no way that's going to stay a stroke, it's stayed a stroke. And that's because he's backing his mate up. And again, they'll disagree mm-hmm. with that, probably quite strongly. But trust me, that's happening because they can't get it wrong that many times. Yeah. Um, so it needs to be a clear reason to change the decision. And that very occasion, you do see a, a stroke turn into no let. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are the ones you want to review. So save it for the right time. If you're at sort of in the latter half stage and it's critical, such as 9 all, 8 9, if you're 50 50, then it's probably worth a review because you've only got another three points, you get another review. Yeah. So then I re- I reduce those odds down. And again, that's me with my gambling brain, my betting brain, looking at percentage, looking at odds. Mm-hmm. And that's how if you look at it, what are the chances of that being overviewed? What's the score in the game? Is it the right time? Um, some people will use it tactically. They'll use reviews, yeah. they're very tired. Again, I shouldn't say that, but that's a fact of, of it. Yeah, some yeah. players will use that because they're absolutely exhausted. And that reviews it. Um, process by the way it takes far too long mm-hmm. we discussed yeah. that a few times and mm-hmm. you know even when it's like a knot up look at it five times if you're looking at a thing to knot up or scoop five times you can't see it you're not sure so yeah. play is bloody let mm-hmm. you know well, it goes back goes that, back to that that blink analogy doesn't it like you know the kind of the, the instinctual trust at the moment yeah you know look at it twice if you can't decide twice then move on I mean there's, mm-hmm. to me Good there's point. far too much talk at the moment in the game Jesse about referees decisions um, mm-hmm. you know this sort of stuff let's just concentrate on you know the squash you know, there's too much discussion. The process takes too long. It's become very boring. Mm. Um, I don't want to keep talking about referees and bad decisions and good decisions and who's doing what. I want to watch a game of squash. And um, people are switching off. People are yeah. switching off. There's too much going on. Mm. Yeah, and again, obviously, the the, the game we, that we love and we've massively invested in. Yeah, we 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 want the the, the general public to flick it on a certain channel. And go, wow, this is awesome! And rather than it being this slow, broken down, bitty process, it's just yeah. it's just not attractive, is it? So, um, but Rob, I think there's there's maybe one or two more little threads I'd like to pull on with you, if that's fine. I think what one maybe place to take it at the moment is, you know, you being involved in the game as you are right now, right at the cutting edge of the game with with the players and seeing it and the brain that you. Have have in your opinion where do you see the evolution over the next day several years of the game look it's very interesting i mean i've obviously we're all looking to improve the game and, and grow the sport and you know but we have to be realistic you know that there's other sports coming through like paddle tennis and these sort of mm. things of increasing popularity which clearly are a threat to squash i mean rather than sort of seeing that's a threat i think we need to embrace these things sometimes you know look at getting paddle tennis courts and maybe getting I'd arranged a meeting with the paddle tennis people this week, and they said that 50% of people playing paddle tennis who are uh, visitors to a club have never played a racket sport before. 
Interesting. Which is fascinating to Interesting. me. Now, to me, there's straight away as a market mm. there. Signpost them to in. the squash courts, yeah. Let's get them playing some squash and tennis, joining the clubs. Because I mean, all the clubs are strong for membership at the moment. So let's get some of those guys playing other sports, you know. Mm. And if we get 10% of those guys, and the, the paddle tennis numbers come through they're talking about, mm. um, which is potentially millions of people, that's going to make squash a lot healthier. 100%. I've recently just set up a group called the uh, Independent Squash Fights, which you may have read about or heard mm. about with myself, Peter Marshall, Danny Lee. Uh, Laura Massara and Nick Matthew. Yes. Um, and we've been trying to implement changes for the good of the game. Um, now, this is a really difficult one because a lot of the changes we've implemented, we have made some change already. Um, we can't claim credit for, you know, so we're meeting at PSA, we're meeting in squash, um, we're looking at refereeing. I mean, we've all, I've been a big advocate of uh, full-time referees, um, things like that. I think, I think we should be a lot more professional. Um, mm-hmm. Full-time commentators, at the moment we've got squash coaches or yeah. ex-players commentating. There's only one full-time commentator, which is Jerry Barrington. Mm-hmm. I think this, the commentary could improve a lot, mm-hmm. um, a lot more diversity. And um, again, that's something under the scenes. We're trying to, you know, get more diversity, get some Egyptian commentators, commentating on squash TV. 100%. Um, <laughs> you know, they, they, they've got all the top players, top three players. I'd love to see some Egyptian ladies yeah. commentating. It's crazy there's not been one Egyptian really, I don't can't and recall great, of Egyptian, you know, yeah. Um, so all these things we're looking at. I mean, Laura's just made some suggestions for commentators from Egyptian. We're, we're, we're reaching out to these people. And there's some good people, you know, between nice. us, we can get some good names. We're well connected. We're looking at sponsors. I've got a, I've got a sponsor, the guy who came from, um, uh, he's sponsored Rory Gillen, who sponsored Canary Wharf. He's okay. in two days next week. So I'll get him on course. He's bringing the coach from Islands. Um, nice. you know, I've been doing some promoting with him and stuff and talk to these people, finding out what they want as a sponsor, how they want to grow the game. He's looking at building a club. So I think we've all got a role to play in sort of promoting the sport, um, increasing the participation, doing more with juniors. Um, and then any sport going forward, if you talk about the elite level, is a numbers game. Mm-hmm. You know, and in the UK, the standards dropped. Worldwide, the standards dropped, um, take away from Egypt. Um, and we haven't got many people coming through at the moment, Jesse. You look at the rankings, mm-hmm. it's worrying. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think it's probably one of the oldest rankings ever. You know, wow. I think the average age is but I can assure you it'd be a lot older than it was you know, it? 15 yeah. years ago. Yeah, true, yeah. And there's just less young people coming through. Hmm. It's harder to come through because the ranking system, less challenger tour events, but hmm. the bottom is there's just less people playing the game. Hmm. So I coach some of the best juniors in England um, and the drop-off from 1 to 10 is huge. Hmm. Um, 15 years ago, the drop from 1 to 10 would have been far less. Yeah. They might have been 10, 15% worse. Now they'd be 50% worse. Um, and we need to get numbers back playing the game. We've got some people doing some great work at different clubs and some great mm. coaches, some great club coaches, mm. enthusiastic. I mean, let's be honest, nobody tries to do a bad job, whether you're a good <laughs> coach or a bad coach. They're not trying to do a shit job, are they? 100%. You know, they're trying to do their best. You know, everyone's trying to do their best. And I recognise that. So they're really not people. They're trying to do their best. And it doesn't mm. matter whether it's an academy, whether they're dealing with league players, club players, everybody out there is trying to do their best yeah. to promote the game Pulling and make them enjoy, enjoy playing swaps. Mm. That's Same with referees. Mm. You know, they get a lot of stick. They're volunteers, these guys. Mm. They're doing it generally, I think, because they love the game. Mm. For no money or little money. <laughs> yeah. Um, so again, you know, I'll give them some stick, but I mean, I'll be honest with it, but I appreciate the job they're doing. 100%. Um, we hear there's more money coming to the game, which is a good thing. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, I know PSA are working very hard behind the scenes with meeting them, striking an overall tour sponsor. Mm. Um, and that could revolutionise things if we all of a sudden get a tour sponsor and some, some money behind the game where we can, we can get full-time referees. That would be great. Uh, we, can, we can have a studio um, before the match and have some preamble and then we have a post-match analysis afterwards. I think that's important. Yes. Um, rather than having Joey and Lee Ju sprinting down for the box, sweating, doing, a, doing the post-match commentary. 
Yeah, um, it, it looks Mickey Mouse. Yeah, you know? professionalism. Yeah, kind of like kind of um, yeah. building that up. Well, look, Rob sounds amazing. Like like really, you know, well well done for 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 your drive and passion in the in the grassroots and and kind of trying to get done because obviously you're like I said right at that at that kind of sharp edge of it. But actually, how you can see it and filter it down and go actually we need to grow that base of the pyramid. Um, and if I just maybe zoom into the professional game for for but maybe your final thoughts on this, where where the evolution of the professional game what I mean by that maybe the style of play and, and obviously we've had these ebbs and flows going from you know the days of Jonah and then in the 90s with you know maybe Peter Nickel David Palmer's and then you know all what we what we're seeing today a little bit what um again if you could project and using the brain that you have what where do you see the game slightly moving the next 10 to 20 years do you think Look, I, I actually think the standard is getting uh it's gonna get worse next five years considerably um which is sad to say uh, i think let me just qualify that quantify that. so yeah uh, i think the women's game is going to be very good strong for a while i see there's okay. some women coming through um the top egyptian players are as good as overseen uh, and the strength and depth is, is as good if not better overseen in fact it's the best here overseen mm-hmm. five years ago four years ago is when you had nick matthews your dolce your james at the top yeah um the rummies your shabanas um Dolce, all these people it, it was an amazing standard you know on blue that's clearly dropped off from there um, without a doubt um, there's always been this thing which is somewhat annoying about the Egyptian style of play and how much better now they move the game on how much quicker it is well it's mm. not quick at all it's ball goals now playing a very traditional style of game mm. gluing the ball down the wall very much Barrett and Hunt um, you know even like Shabana did that that sort of great length and, it's, and that's not a backward step that's a huge skill and they actually mm. can't play against that um, you know the fact that he won that British Open style he did Ironically, beating four Egyptians in the process, I think it was, yeah. um, which is always in the nature of the thing because most Egyptian top players are Egyptian. So sure. whenever he plays a draw, he's probably going to beat three or four Egyptian players. And I couldn't care less if they're Pakistani, Australian, Egyptian, English, whatever. Yeah. Um, they're squash players to me. I don't look at them as Egyptian style. And all those Egyptians play very differently mm. as well. You know, Mohammed is very different from Ali. And the South's coming with a different brand of squash. Mm. Looks like Mazin is completely different. Shabana was a wonderful sort of technician to me yeah. and a beautiful squash player, a beautiful move, a beautiful technician. Um, so they're all quite different. And, and Marlon, actually, when he was playing well, he had the best length I've felt in the world, mm. very traditional in many ways. Um, but squash hasn't changed fundamentally, Jesse. Mm-hmm. There's still the four walls, there's still yeah. the four corners. As far as I'm aware, the court's the same size, I think. And it's got a slightly lower tin. Mm. Um, and, you know, Paul Cole, look, it could have been I had someone like Ramesh Shaw, and I wouldn't be coaching my coach Paul Cole, but I coached Paul to be world number one, the best player in the world. And he had a certain style, and this was how he's going to be the best player in the world. Mm-hmm. Now, if I had somebody else coming on, if I had an uh, SJ, I wouldn't be coaching. I could get it for various reasons, whatever. I'd coach her differently to be world number one. So there's yeah. different ways of skinning a cat. You know, there's different ways of not skinning mm. a cat, skinning a rabbit, isn't it? Um, oh no! I think what, what's to say? It's kind of yeah. There's more than one way to skin a cat, isn't there? Which is, is weird. Okay. Like, yeah, but it's like that's a terrible kind of statement, isn't yeah. it? Like, why would you I'll skin a skin cat? A cat. <laughs> we'll want to. Uh, very weird thing. But anyway, <laughs> so there's different ways of different people. There's different methods. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, as as I keep saying, all my players are very different. So I've got some very promising young juniors now. I've got Katie Bennett, Jenna Brown, someone's wild, Hassan Galil. Um, you know, I've, I've basically four of the best young lads in the, in the, and girls in the, in the country, and nice. they're all different. I'll be teaching them all slightly differently. Mm-hmm. Um, potentially, they can all do very well. But um, as far as the future, I, I'm just hoping that we get some young kids coming through. Okay. Um, because things can change quickly. They could mm. get a young lad playing in Pakistan now, hopefully. That's going to be the next challenge of Khan or Jangir Khan. Yeah. Um, I'd love to see him on some Australian players. I was going to say, um, yeah, the Aussies feel like, in. yeah, that's dropped a big time. To eh? me, it's, it's horrendous. I never thought, I'd as a gambling man, uh, I'd have had a huge bet you would have been Australian in the top 20, let alone not in the top 100. It's just 100 an, now, astonishing. It? 
Mm. You know, I mean, uh, the science of the eggs, obviously, that Pilly and uh, Pascali, who's a, who's a good friend of mine, mm-hmm. uh, and they sort of papered over cracks a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but below them, there was nothing, nothing coming through. So and I guess you could argue, really, with, with England. I mean, we mm. had Nick, uh, James, um, Barker, these sort of people. Um, yeah. And they, they held the fort for a long time. But again, mm. there was very little substance underneath that. And I think that was an issue. Yeah. We didn't quite realise that. And mm. we were spoiled. Because we mm-hmm. had an incredible generation of players that even like someone like Selby is not great, but he's still number whatever he was in the country. Yeah. Um, and he would have been four or five in England. Mm-hmm. He'd be number one clearly now. Mm-hmm. You know, and, uh, you know, Daryl did exceptionally well in his career. Mm-hmm. Um, to get to where he got to, really, he's not got as mm-hmm. much ability as other guys. Um, fantastic move, very smooth, good defensive player. Mm-hmm. Um, loved his old top spins and stuff and shot him up. <laughs> Through the legs, definitely. Yeah, <laughs> garbage, most of it, really. Um, but, uh, you know, he was still a very good squash player and he would have been four, four in England, you know, mm. five in barely get the team. Mm. Um, now he'd be the standout player. So it's worrying where we've got to play on the top, you know, 20. And James is holding the fort still at 38, 39 years old. Yeah, wow. Well, yeah, and yeah, credit to James for doing that. But um, it sounds like, listen, the, the, the group you're trying to build and, and what you've got going on at the moment, hopefully in the next few years, we can we can really see uh, the, the the fruits of that labour you're putting in. Um, listen, Robbo, this has been flipping delightful i've loved having this chat with you i hope you've enjoyed it man thank you for sharing some of some of your stuff uh together and yeah listen um i hope that those that are listening to this um you know can can kind of really see what's going on and you know you so just um, real quickly to finish off you're based at west warwick's club in birmingham just so people can kind of look for your search west 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 warwick's club in um birmingham solid home it's actually in alton um, it's a great club, a great history. Uh, Jonah Barrington was there for sort of 15, 20 years. Um, Dad Evans, the British number one tennis player, number two now, um, top 25 in the world. He's he's played there from four years old. It's a fantastic facility. Um, I'm a big promoter of all clubs down in the area. Um, you know, I love squash. Um, I, just, I just love being involved, Jesse. I mean, look, like it's been a, it's been very pleasurable doing the podcast today, and I just I just hope I haven't upset too many people. We'll soon find out, they won't we? And we will soon find out, Rob. And listen, and the honesty, the directness, that's, that's like you said, mm. I think maybe we need a little bit more of this. So you've been an absolute gem. I know we're going to have a lot of chats uh, in the future. And Jesse, stuff. I'll just interrupt you. Let me just quickly say, if I have upset somebody, I'm very sorry. Because I don't want to start writing loads of, uh, loads of messages to everybody. And uh, Mohammed, I hope you're okay. Um, good luck this week. And uh, look forward to catching up with you soon. Brilliant. Mate, absolute <laughs> legend, Rob. Thank you so much, man. We'll speak soon, eh? <laughs> okay. Cheers, mate.